Greetings again, everyone. One brief announcement that I have. All of you ladies who are interested are invited to a meeting in the conference room after services and after everyone's had a chance for a cup of coffee. I'm sure that's voluntary. I don't have a name on it as to who invites you, but all the ladies are inviting each other. Unfortunately, I'm going to be gone the next couple of weekends. I'm scheduled to go to some campaigns. I have to be up in Kansas City and then Tulsa, and then the following week I'll be over in Huntsville, Alabama, and then in August, about the 29th, over in Richmond, Virginia, and I think one other in Atlanta, somewhere between those two. So about four of the Sabbaths in the next month and a half or so I'll be missing from here. What I want to say to you today was triggered by the following letter. It is very typical of letters we have received over the last four years. But it's so thorough, and I think the attitude and the spirit of the lady who wrote it from down in Florida is so e exemplary that I think it will be very, very interesting for all of you to hear it and for all of those along the tape program. She wrote on June 20th, 1982, Dear Sirs, I have been a member of the Worldwide Church of God for almost 13 years. In the past several years, I have reached a very low state of affairs in my attitude toward the church and its leadership. I was very enthusiastic when I first joined and participated in all church activities. Now I find that Saturday has become the most stressful day of the week and in many ways the most dishonest. I go to church with my Sabbath smile and carefully guard what I say for fear of being reported to a minister. I find the sermons very depressing, totally lacking in love and compassion. The byword seems to be total obedience to Mr. Armstrong's every utterance. We are told that if we do not submit to every directive, no matter how inane, we and our children will not be protected from the tribulation or taken to a place of safety. They have me in the grips of fear. I am at a loss as to how to overcome this fear. No matter what I read in the Bible about fear not being of God, the fear still remains. I might add that I'm even writing this letter in fear of being discovered and summarily disfellowshipped. In the past month since the feast and the new doctrine in quotes on makeup being issued, I have done an enormous amount of Bible study and thinking, something I allowed others to do for me for too many years. As a consequence of all of my studying, I wrote two lengthy letters disputing the makeup issue and their absolute authority in my personal life. I spent several months researching and documenting my findings from the Bible, concordance, dictionaries, historical accounts, histories of fashion, and even Mr. Armstrong's own past writings. My minister summed up all my efforts in two words, so what, and attributed my letters to female emotionalism. It seems that the church leadership is right even when it is wrong, or so our minister says. When these efforts on my part failed, my husband wrote a letter concerning seven points. The minister came to our house with the intent of disfellowshipping my husband if he didn't back down. Then, on the following Sabbath, we were publicly condemned for our attitudes in a very angry and emotional sermon. Our names were not mentioned, but our close friends knew that he was speaking about us. I, of my own choosing, have not gone to church since, although I do plan to return but my husband thinks I should take a vacation from it for a while. I am thoroughly disgusted and demoralized. It seems that the attitude now is that when the ministry sees something wrong and takes steps to correct it, they are cleaning up the church. 
But when a member points out a fault in the ministry, we are undermining the church. One more disturbance on our part will certainly be dealt with in the extreme. There have been a number of people disfellowshipped in our area for just the la- in just the last few months. There's an absolute intolerance of disagreement on the part of the membership. For the past two years, I have come away from the feast feeling that something was terribly wrong, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. I attributed this lack in myself, that something was wrong with me. I've become conditioned to blaming myself. We are always told that if we find fault with the ministry, we are in effect condemning God. This year, I'm not even looking forward to the feast. All I really want is peace of mind. Since the feast, I have suffered severe depression, insomnia, colds, flu, chest pains, and general lethargy. The joy has gone out of my life. Every happy experience is marred by the intrusion into my life by men who think they have absolute power over my life. I fear the next new doctrines, in quotes, that God has revealed, in quotes, to them. Quite frankly, I feel as though we have been abandoned by the church. I feel all they're interested in is our money and the control of our minds. I might add that one of my friends who continued to wear makeup to a lesser degree than before was told by our minister that she looked hard and brazen, and she couldn't return to church until she washed her face. We now lead a double life. So many of us follow the same policy. We tone our makeup down on the Sabbath, but wear it per usual the rest of the week. We have learned to be very skillful in our use of makeup, even on the Sabbath. I hate this double standard, but I don't know what else to do. I do not believe that balanced use of makeup is wrong. I also told the minister that I had no intention of teaching my daughter that it is wrong. So many parents are having real problems with their teenage girls. I reminded the minister that in Revelation 22:18, God cautions anyone who adds to the Bible that the plagues would be added to him. I asked him if he wished that for himself. And he said that he would continue to teach the traditions of the church. I have lost all respect for the ministry. I checked your booklet on the Christian woman very carefully with my Bible and Strong's Concordance. The point of this letter is to tell you how much I appreciated the booklet. I felt there was true love and compassion expressed in that book, such as I have not experienced for years. As a matter of fact, I read it twice. It gave me the courage to write you this letter, no matter what the consequences. By the way, my husband was very impressed. I would like my own personal copy and any other literature you can send us. She signs it, and then, P.S., from her husband, I concur with the content of my wife's letter, and I'm also interested in receiving your literature, and I think I'll keep their names anonymous. I'd like you to turn to the book of Ezekiel, the 13th chapter, Fascinating part of the Bible, very, very difficult to understand. I have looked this up in the commentaries, and I have brought with me Bullinger's Companion Bible to read a few segments from it, because several of these words are so obscure. In the 13th chapter of Ezekiel is quite a message of admonition, of rebuke against false prophets, false ministers, those who have daubed a false wall with untempered mortar or whitewash. Now, we all know the political use of the term whitewashing something, meaning glossing over the evil and putting a a pretended beautiful facade on it, exactly as Jesus said of the Pharisees in the 23rd chapter of Matthew, that they were like whitened sepulchers. In verse 10 of the 13th chapter of Ezekiel, speaking of these false prophets, "...because even because they have seduced my people, saying, Peace!" 
and there was no peace. Now that is the message of our politicians. That is the message of President Reagan. It is the message of our politicians on Capitol Hill and, of course, of the people who were sitting down to talk about START, S-T-A-R-T, or the strategic arms talks in Geneva. They talk about peace, but, of course, there is no peace in the world. And the message that has been going out to the world from what should be the great effort on the part of God's church where the millions of dollars repose, where the wherewithal to do the work is really coming in, that message has been peace, peace. That message has been delivered before the leaders of nations such as China, nations in Africa, in Southeast Asia, nations in Europe, always before a group of perhaps Civitans, perhaps Rotarians, perhaps a group of ambassadors in banquets and various other smaller meetings, and continually the message has been peace is coming in our time. The message began to sound like Neville Chamberlain coming back from his meeting with Adolf Hitler waving the famous white paper. And yet there is no peace either in the church nor in the world. And one built up a wall, verse 10, and lo, others daubed it with untempered mortar. In other words, one concocts a doctrine, another glosses over it, adds to it, makes it palatable, makes it appear good. Say unto them which daub it with untempered mortar, that it shall fall. And then in verse 12, Lo, when the wall is fallen, shall it not be said unto you, Where is the daubing? Where is that exterior, that false facade you placed on your false doctrine? Now to the part that is very, very interesting, verse 17. Likewise, thou son of man, set thy face against the daughters of thy people, which prophesy out of their own heart, and prophesy thou against them. And say, Thus says the Lord Eternal, Woe to the women that sew pillows to all armholes, and make kerchiefs upon the head of every stature to hunt souls. What in the world does that mean? Women who allegedly were, were sewing pillows to all armholes. Now my margin says upon all elbows. Let me just read from Bullinger's Companion Bible briefly. A note on verse 18, sew pillows to all armholes, means sew together coverings upon all the joints of my hands. In other words, an expression out of the Hebrew language that means hide from the people the hands of Jehovah lifted up and stretched forth in judgment. And two other scriptural references are giving. Pillows, a note on that. Coverings for the purposes of concealment. The Hebrew word occurs only here and in verse 20. Armholes, referring to the hand that protrudes from the armholes, referring to the judgments they were to execute. The Septuagint renders it by a different Greek word implying for the head. A note on make kerchiefs upon the head of every stature, not statue, but stature, meaning a person of great stature, means make mantles to cover the heads and therefore the eyes of those on whom the judgments of God's hands were about to fall, lest they should see. A note on kerchiefs, wraps that cleave close about the head, the Hebrew word occurs only here, and comes from sapa to join or cleave closely, the object being to cover the head so that God's hand may not be seen. So apparently the thrust of this verse in the very awkward translation of the King James language, the English language, is that false prophets and prophetesses were blinding the eyes of people, were obscuring from them the stretched forth hand of God in judgment, and were deceiving the people. 
Hunt means to harry or ensnare, and souls is rendered nephesh, put here, meaning the people. So I brought Bullinger's Companion Bible as one help, but there are others you could look into. But notice what it says in verse 19 and on to the end of this. Will you pollute me among my people for handfuls of barley and for pieces of bread, meaning for hire, for their food to fill their bellies, to slay the souls that should not die and to save the souls alive that should not live? Now, applying it for the moment to the nation. I have done quite a large number of television programs involved with recidivism, with criminal justice. Just last night, my wife and I were absolutely at a loss for words. You just sit there at the television and you look at the news and you look at one another and you don't even know how to, you don't know how to do anything except just shrug. Here was a young man who had murdered, strangled to death, a 13-year-old mental patient in a mental institution over in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. They interviewed his father. The young man is out on the street, as free as you are. I don't know. It was some minor little technicality that he didn't really understand what he was charged with during the trial. And so he is free today. And other people are frightened that this young man is going to get an opportunity to slay or to murder them. Now you're all familiar with what happened in the case of John Hinckley. I don't know what your personal feeling about it is, but my personal feeling has to do with the entire field of psychiatry, of having looked into what psychiatrists say about fellow psychiatrists, of studying the results of some National Psychiatric Association conventions, and of hearing them cheerfully admit that no one needs to be examined any more than psychiatrists. And when I found out that Hinckley is going to be studying ink splotches and tell them whether or not they look like a father attacking his son or a butterfly, I didn't know what to do. Climb a tree and jabber, or run out through the field and plow it up, or go destroy a 40-acre crop of corn. I just didn't know what in the world to do with myself. But it is unbelievable that the criminal justice system of the United States of America does not know right from wrong and they don't even have a penalty or, let's say, a sentence which reads guilty but insane or insane but guilty. They have instead not guilty by reason that he was a little off, you know, a little crazy at the time. Well, as I said in the program, you've got to be crazy to try to kill the President of the United States. Only a crazy person would do that. But you apply this as well to the ministry and you ask yourself in dumbfounded amazement if there is any place on the face of God's good green earth where a person should be able to expect justice, judgment, mercy, gentleness, meekness, patience, faith, deep understanding, you know, a real fair shake, the opportunity to be heard and to be understood. It's got to be in the church. It's got to be going to your minister. Now, if I were a young student playing high school basketball... And every time I showed up on the court, all the coach ever did was tell me, you dumb clod, you can't dribble, you can't pass, you can't shoot, you don't know the ball from a pair of tennis shoes, that up there is a hoop, that string hanging on it is the net. I want to teach you what this basketball court is all about, you dumb clod. If every time I walked into a session, a chalk talk session, and here's my coach 
the guy who is supposed to be making a great basketball player out of me, and all he does is tell me what a pointed-headed imbecile I am. And every time we have a session with a coach, he puts me down. He talks me down. He emphasizes my mistakes. I remember one time the greatest compliment I ever received from a person out of the pulpit involving basketball. Got up in the pulpit and said something to the effect about, you know, Grinder Ted is a great passer. I saw him make a great pass today to the other team. Well, that was supposed to be, I guess, a left-handed compliment. I didn't enjoy it all that much. I said, ha ha, like a lot of us do, you know, when someone digs us pretty good and we say, ha ha, because we don't know what else to say. All eyes are looking at it. Probably a good idea to laugh, so I laughed. But it didn't really make me feel real good. What kind of a, of a job would you say that coach is doing? Is it the job of a coach to instill a feeling of confidence, to emphasize all of your good points? And if you do make a mistake, say, hey, don't worry about it, you'll get it right next time, to encourage you, to inspire you, to really work with you, to produce the very best in you that is possible. Well, what is the job of a minister the way you see it as a lay member of a congregation? Is a minister to be like a coach? Is he to be in your bleachers cheering you on, applauding your efforts, saying you're going to make it, you're doing fine, and you're probably going to do a little better? Or is he up there to tell you what a clod you are and to make you feel hopeless, morose, defeated, discouraged, fearful, downcast, and go away from Sabbath services with a what's-the-use feeling? If I had to approach the Feast of Tabernacles the way that poor woman was thinking about going to the Feast this year, probably she's going to come to Branson, Missouri, or over to Gunnersville State Park. I've written her a letter and I had her letter typed and sent it out to all of our ministers as an example, and with her permission I'm going to reprint it anonymously in the international news. Because it is absolutely typical, and it goes into several different points that we've received in hundreds of letters over the years and phone calls. And of course, a few weeks ago there were two couples from Hattiesburg, Mississippi that came over here to visit us and sat in there in my office and told me the same identical things. And it was about everything from makeup to birthdays to voting to you name it. Really big, deep, heavy, doctrinal questions. As I said, I've written an article recently about the subject of birthdays, a very deep, uh, twiggy subject. And I said I went all the way into the heart of the twig, uh, which if you want to read, if you are interested in twigs, you're welcome to do so. So notice that they have everything backward in verse 19. They save alive the people that should not die, and to save the souls alive that should not live by your lying to my people that hear your lies. Verse 20. Wherefore, thus says the Lord Eternal, Behold, I am against your pillows. Remember, these are like kerchiefs or something to conceal or to pull like... It's being hoodwinked. It's like pulling the wool over the eyes of the people. Wherewith you there hunt, or it says harry or harass, the people to make them fly... And I will tear them from your arms and will let the people go, even the people that you hunt or harry to make them fly. Your kerchiefs also will I tear and deliver my people out of your hand, and they shall be no more in your hand to be hunted or harried or harassed or exploited. And you shall know that I am the eternal. Now, the crux of it. Verse 22. Because with lies you have made the heart of the righteous sad and strengthen the hands of the wicked that he should not return from his wicked way by promising him life. 
Therefore you shall see no more vanity nor divine divinations, for I will deliver my people out of your hand, and you shall know that I am the Eternal. God does not want the heart of the righteous to be made sad. Back in 1977, I sent a great lengthy letter to the entirety of the ministry of the church. In the ministerial conference of that year, I quoted the following scripture, and I want to turn to it now, and it became, I thought, the hallmark of the ministry, the hallmark of the church, and we were on our way into broad new horizons of accomplishment. People were enthusiastic. The youth program was growing. Family night had been instituted. We had family night at five out of the eight festival sites in 1977. The entire church was going to begin the practice of setting apart one night per week every week, a Tuesday, a Thursday, or whatever, and they were going to turn off television. They were going to do nothing except gather together as a family. If there was a widow, she would gather with other people. If there was a single uh, young widowed woman with a child, she would be at someone else's home. But it was going to be a family occasion. We were going to consolidate the college in Big Sandy and have maybe 1,500 students until it grew to be a small university with accreditation. We were going to make a beautiful visitor's center out of the beautiful, big, fluted, columned building called the Student Center in Pasadena, where we would have closed-circuit television, radio, the original old Neo-style, the original 1934 editions of the Plain Truth magazine, the original radio programs, that song we sang today. We would have the original old records. I would hear my mother's voice, my sister, Walt Freezy, and some others who were singing In My Heart There Rings a Melody that used to be the theme song for the radio program in 1934 and 5. It would be a dazzling, beautiful experience for people to come to the headquarters of the church. And the church would be visible like a sparkling jewel, and the college would be distinctly separate from the church. And I told them, even as the Mormons have Brigham Young University, and, of course, in Salt Lake City is the Mormon Tabernacle. I also wanted to have an ambassador auditorium chorale that I wanted to become world famous. I wanted it to be an absolute professional, top quality, fabulous chorale along the lines of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir and to be heard on national educational television and to really build a name for itself. There were so many things we wanted to do. There were so many new people coming into the church. Makeup was not a block or a stumbling block for new women to come into the church of God. Suddenly, everything happened that we know. They reverted clear back to the 1950s, and very, very strange things began to happen. Here is that scripture in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 24. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 24. Now, from that time on, I've repeated this scripture time and again, and it has become a very important one to the ministry of the Church of God International. He said, I'll read up to it in verse 23, Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul that to spare you I came not as yet unto Corinth, not that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy. For by faith you stand. Notice how even when the Apostle Paul felt he needed to correct, he put a little disclaimer in there. So you don't misunderstand. I might have to come there and straighten something else. Not that we have dominion over your faith. Now you have your faith, and I have my faith. 
And your faith is your own personal faith in your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and that is your private personal possession. Doesn't this tell you right here in the sacred word of God that the minister of God, the Apostle Paul, was an apostle to this Gentile church, did not have dominion, meaning rulership, sovereign governorship, over their personal faith in Christ, but that they had their own direct personal lynch or link or direct channel, direct communication to Jesus Christ without having to go through any man? and that he did not have dominion. But what was he? He was a helper of their joy. Let's turn to the famous scriptures speaking of the gifts of the Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit as opposed to the fruit of the flesh. And you know that's over in Galatians, the fifth chapter, beginning in verse 22. I won't read all of those preceding verses, but this is something by which you can continually take your spiritual temperature you can ask, thinking very profoundly about this woman's letter as one of your sisters in Christ, which she is, what are the fruits? Jesus said, by their fruits you shall know them. I received a letter just last week and I answered that letter. A man said, I'm perplexed, I'm confused. I believe your father is preaching the truth. And of course, when he hears a tape that was made in 1949 or 55, he's going to hear what I also believe is the truth. But he said, I believe he is doing the work of God. But as he said, I hear you on the radio and you're preaching the truth. And I believe you're also doing the work of God. Now, how can that be? He said, all confused. How can two people out here both be doing the work of God? Well, I think of Paul and Barnabas, who had a dispute. I don't know who was right. It was a problem over personnel. Young John Mark had done something, and apparently Paul was a little bit irascible, sometimes perhaps a little difficult to get along with, and he just wasn't about to have young John Mark accompany them on that particular journey. Barnabas insisted that John Mark was necessary for that trip. And it said the dispute, the disagreement, was so sharp between them but they split up, and one went one way, and the other went the other way, and the work of God was done. Now, of course, I won't go into all of that in background material, but I wrote this gentleman a letter, and I told him what I have always said on the radio and what I will always say out of the pulpit. You must judge by the fruits. You can only know by looking at the fruit, at what is born through the efforts, at what is produced. You can only know by carefully checking with the Word of God and I quoted to the law and the testimony that they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them, that we need to be workmen that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, that no prophecy of, is of any private interpretation, that we have to compare Scripture with Scripture because it is line upon line and precept upon precept, and that we dare not, as it says in the very stern warning in the latter part of Revelation, read our interpretations into the Bible, nor delete or take anything out of the Bible, but we must go according to the written Word of God. That's all I could tell him. I'm not about to tell him that my father's organization is not the Church of God because I happen to believe that it, at least in the main, so far as its members are concerned, and who knows, maybe some of the ministers are. 
as I see corruption spreading and as I see people who make statements to beleaguered ladies in the church who come to them with a deep emotional and a spiritual crisis and are told, so what? I don't understand how three weeks of poring over concordances, of studying the Bible, of getting on your knees in prayer, of tremorously and timorously coming to a person whom you admire and you respect and you want an answer from the Lord. You're looking upon this person as your representative from heaven. He, to you, represents the kingdom of God. And you come in fear and you say, what do you think of my efforts? He says, so what? I have to deal with that. I have to try to, to handle that. Verse 22, chapter 5, But the fruit of the Spirit, this is the Bible, the Word of God, is love, joy, peace. And we can read all the rest of them. Long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. Love, number one. Now, we all know the Scripture that says there is no fear in love. You know, you tend to fear what you hate, and you tend to hate what you fear. People have hatred in their heart because they fear people who are different from them, who are different colors, speak different languages, have different social customs. We fear sometimes things we do not understand. Heights, the dark, certain insects, poisons, plants. People fear being alone. People fear being in the middle of a crowd. There's every kind of a phobia you can imagine. But you see that the fruits of the flesh include not only all of these horrible physical, sexual, and other various perversions that are listed, but also notice in verse 20, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies. You know, a lot of people pass over the fact that in the condemnation of the last verses of Revelation 22, it gives you a list of those who will not be in the kingdom of God but those who will be cast into a lake of fire, did you know it also includes the fearful? Read it again. It says the fearful. Why is that? Because you cannot have fear without having hatred, and because there is no fear in love. Now, an absence of fear is present in a little child, because children have not yet been taught to hate or to be afraid. You can take a little child, they're not even afraid of heights. Parents shouldn't do this, but I've seen them doing that, tossing a baby up in the air, tossing a child between two men, playing with the child, and it is just thrilled by flying through the air, and there is no fear there whatsoever. A child isn't afraid of heights, because they haven't yet got, gotten to the point where someone has made them afraid of heights. But fear is present in many people in God's church, and God's Word says it should not be. I want you to show, I want to show you an example or two. Would you believe that there are 164 places in the Bible where the word joy appears? I won't show you, but just a few. There are, for example, many places, 25 in all, where the word joyful appears. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 4, since we're back here in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 4. There are so many places in the Bible where the word joy, where happiness, where exaltation, where singing, and where being joyous are mentioned, especially in the Psalms, of course, as you might guess if you've read a lot of the Psalms. 
But here in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 4, Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. Joyful in our tribulation. For when we were come into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings. Within were fears. Nevertheless, God that comforts those that are cast down comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you when he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoiced the more. It's amazing how when you have a real horrible thing happen to you, you can't stand it until you get it off your chest and you tell somebody about it. And who are you going to take it to? You're going to have to take it to a person you love and you trust. You will go with your deepest problems to your closest friends. The deeper the problem, the closer the friend. You do not take very deep personal traumatic experiences, things that concern you, over which you are perplexed or hurt or puzzled or bewildered, to a casual acquaintance because you know they don't want to listen. And when you talk it out, there's a process here that is a kind of a mental and a spiritual healing. It's going to take time. A lot of people don't understand that, and they try to be very, very abrupt, as I see some ministers are, with people who have a problem. They don't realize that one of your needs when you have a problem is to talk it out. And in doing so, you sort out your own feelings. You make those feelings clear. You articulate them. You get a real sharp focus on just what they are. You have another mind, another spirit there, giving input, giving suggestions. And it's almost exactly like turning the, hot, the, the cold water tap on a burn or something. You're, you're gradually taking that pain away as you begin to share it. Now here the Apostle Paul is showing that when he finds brethren of the church were mourning and were deeply grieved over his sorrow, it was like draining some of that pain away, and it caused him to rejoice. I want you to turn to... Psalms 5 and 11. Now, there are literally dozens in the Psalms, and there are way too many for me to take more than just one or two as an example. But in the fifth Psalm and verse 11 is one, and we'll go back to Psalm 100 right quickly and take a look at it. It says, Let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because you defend them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in you. For thou, eternal, will bless the righteous with favor, will you compass him as with a shield. Another one over in the Psalm 100, the 100th Psalm, and right in the first verse. And remember that there are 25 times in the Bible where this word joyful appears. And there are 164 places where the word joy appears. Verse 1, one that we used to memorize as children because it was so short, Make a joyful noise unto the Eternal, all you lands. Serve the Eternal with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know ye that the Eternal, He is God. It is He that has made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving, and into His courts with praise. Be thankful unto Him, and bless His name. For the Eternal is good, His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endures to all generations. It then follows, does it not, 
that his minister and his servant is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth also endures unto many generations, or at least it should. Ministers, we have read, are to be helpers of the joy of the people of God. You know, when we see the many places in the Bible where the word joy appears, including the angels who said they shouted with joy at the birth of Christ, the wise men who, when they saw the star, rejoiced with great joy, Matthew 2.10, how even in the parables when some hears the word, like the seed falling, falling in the shallow soil, anon with joy he receives it, or the one who found the pearl of great price with great joy he went and sold all that he had to buy that one pearl of great price. What do these people, perhaps that includes us, we certainly hope and pray it does, who have salvation have to be happy about? What do they have to be joyful about? I have seen many courtroom situations where people were on tenterhooks at the last moment, and of course it's very difficult to judge the family of Hinckley and to judge their emotional reactions because after all it's very difficult for such a person to be completely without bias, isn't it? You have to understand their heart and their emotion. Naturally, they rejoiced. Naturally, they were relieved. Naturally, there were great tears of rejoicing when they heard that verdict. But they can't quite be as unbiased as perhaps other people can be. I will never forget, and I've seen many such newsreels, but one in particular stands out of my mind when I was a teenager, about 15 or 16, and following the very rapid overrunning of German troop positions, especially in Bavaria, near where Dachau was located by Patton's Third Army and others in World War II, we saw some of the newsreels of GIs going into some of these camps like Maidenach and Dachau and Auschwitz and Buchenwald. And I will never forget that there was a GI photographer that came right in and was photographing these emaciated scarecrows in their tattered prison garb, stacked like so much cordwood in these hard wooden bunks. And they showed this one man when the GIs were opening this huge big barbed wire gate, and he came stumbling toward them, fell to his knees and crawled the last few steps, and grabbed that GI's muddy boots and just clung on to them, weeping and crying because he knew he had been saved from the most hideous death you could imagine. Now, that man's joy, that man's sense of relief, you could, you could simply translate into the many, many rescue stories you've heard. People who have been out in the middle of a storm-tossed ocean, abandoned on a life raft people who have been in the proverbial desert island, a child that fell into a well, a child that was locked into a backyard refrigerator or freezer, and the parents were despairing, and finally the firemen got it open, and the child was not dead, and he was rescued. And you can think in human terms of the feeling of relief, of happiness, and of joy when someone has been saved. Now, what have you been? What happens to you when you receive Jesus Christ of Nazareth? What happens to you? What transformation takes place when your sins have been forgiven? What does it mean to you? What has been given to you at that time? Now, I do not remember, scarcely, I can say I remember almost nothing before my fourth birthday. Maybe some vague thought was put into my head by my parents that repeated it many, many times when I was two or three. But I have to tell you honestly before God, I don't remember a bit of it. And yet, all during those years, 
I was spanked repeatedly. Many, many times I'm sure that I was blistered pretty good because I remember 200 licks of the sandpaper side of a ping-pong paddle on my bare rear end, which is probably why it is so large, I don't know, for merely being late for, from school or something of that nature when I was in grade school. And that was excruciating. But I can't remember those occasions when I was very young, very tiny. And it makes me think in terms of my brief life span. Now, I'm on the wrong side, they say the wrong side, of a half-century mark. And as every year's go, year goes by, I get further on the wrong side of it. And I get closer toward that inevitable time when a few more wrinkles are going to appear or my last black hair, if there still is one, is going to fade away and some more are going to fall out. And inevitably, I won't breathe quite as well, run quite as fast. I won't swing a golf club or a racquetball uh, racket handle quite as well as I can now. And I'm not doing it as well now as I could when I was 36. And I wasn't doing it as well then as I could when I was 22. And eventually, the old machinery is going to wear down. It's amazing to me that when I talk to very elderly people, they will tell you their lives went by almost like a weekend. It just went whizzing by so fast they don't know what happened to virtually a lifespan. And I find now I can talk in terms of decades or 20 years. I'll look around in amazement every now and then and talk to my wife about something or other that happened and say, do you realize that was 27 years ago? You'll go through something in your home when you're unpacking a box or when you move something. You'll come up with a scrap of something. You'll remember every word on it. When you wrote it, where you were, all about it, it says 1953. And you say, for pity's sake, look how old that is. And uh, then you look at how old you are. I had a car, and I had to get rid of it. And I'm sorry that I had to get rid of it. I'd love to get it back. It was an antique. It was born the same year I was, and they call that car an antique. And if you were to see it going by out here, you would say, look at that old, old car, that ancient old Model A Ford, a 1930 Model A Ford. And I even traced down the serial numbers on the block, and it was built by Henry Ford in February of 1934. I had a lot of affinity for that old car. And we looked good together, the two of us, when we'd drive down the street. People would honk and say, look at that old guy in that old car. And, and it made me feel good to have that old car. I'd love to get it back. I had to sell it and take a loss in selling it as well. But how fast our lives go by. There are many, many places in my life where I've experienced pain. The greatest pain I've ever experienced has been mental pain. The physical pain passes so fast. But the mental and the spiritual pain create scars that tend to last. Yet even now, as I look back and I remember the absolute agony of what happened to me a little over four years ago, I called my wife. I was in my 310 Cessna. We were with our children. She had come back down to Big Sandy. And I had gotten a letter from my father. And I wanted to immediately come down to be with her. So I jumped in my 310 and I roared out of the oar strip and I was on my way to Minneapolis for a fuel stop and a call on the telephone, grab a cheeseburger or something and come on down. Just left in a real hurry. Violent stomach cramps began to get me right while I was filing the, uh, flying the airplane and I thought I was going to vomit all over the cockpit and it began to just, just seize my stomach until I couldn't even straighten up. And I could barely croak into the microphone. I landed, I got out and I actually was stooped over 
went in and plugged in some money into one of these machines where you, you have a sandwich that comes out in cellophane and then you automatically heat it in a little microwave or something and I was going to get that and put it in there so I'd have something to eat. I thought maybe that's it. I hadn't eaten. Well, I hadn't eaten for about two days because I simply couldn't eat because there was no appetite at all because the things that were happening to me had absolutely killed all appetite. So I tried to talk to her into the payphone, and I was bent over, and I was croaking, and I was hardly able to talk. And I got back in the airplane, and I was just ashen gray, and I had clammy sweat all over me, and I could hardly straighten up. And that was a painful experience mentally, emotionally, and physically. I got down to Big Sandy, and in the following few days, I lost down from 160 pounds to 138. I called Dr. Parrish and asked him, can a person ulcerate in only three or four days? He said, oh, yes, of course. And he said, you know, what to watch for, and I won't go into that and everything, but I didn't have any other symptoms other than the fact that I was losing weight like mad. It was just shedding off of me. I couldn't eat, and I was having these violent stomach cramps, all because of what had been done to my mind of being kicked out of my job, my office, my responsibilities. I thought my whole life's work, my entire life's preparation, every minute I ever sat in a college classroom, every time I was ever in a pulpit, every time I ever did a radio program or a television program, every time I ever typed a word, everything I ever remembered, every note I ever took, was for one purpose and one purpose only. And I thought that purpose was being destroyed. And I just couldn't cope with it. And so I just lost until I thought, I'm going to go down to 100 pounds and waste away and die if I don't start eating and do something. Well, little by little, sense of equilibrium began to return. I gradually began to put on a little bit of weight, and it all came back. Now, four years and some months later, I can look back at that, and I can vaguely remember it, but the pain is past. And now I can have... For four years, there has not been one human being on the face of the earth who can come up to me and say, Get out! You're fired! Some people never understood why I began the Garner Ted Armstrong Evangelistic Association. But let me tell you, what I just related to you is part of the reason, to be really honest. It's part of the reason. Because I said, Nobody is ever going to do that to me again. That's all there is to it. Because I didn't think I could take it one more time. I really believe I couldn't. My wife and I were sitting out fireplace side in the winter in our house out there where we have enjoyed a very beautiful view. We moved into a little place that didn't even have a garage originally four years ago. Been very, very comfortable and very happy with it. Just right at 2,000 square feet and yet so much nicer, I know, than practically anybody in so many nations across the sub-Sahara of Africa in Central and South America, down in Mexico, and I've been to so many places in the world where I've seen a little hovel out here in Flint, Texas, that would look like a castle compared to theirs. So I began to look around and realize what God had given us. And you know, I was just sitting there looking at that home, as unpretentious as it is, and tears came to my eyes when I realized God had given it to us and that no one could take it away. And I was thankful for it. And I have always been thankful for it, and I continually thank God for it. And my wife and I continually agree that God is to be thanked for the fact of having that home. I come to work in an office building now that belongs to the Church of God International. It's bright. It has happy colors. It's cheerful. 
There's a wonderful, warm environment of camaraderie. Everybody mutually loves and respects one another. I don't have anyone around here in the office that I walk in. They look at me like, uh, who are you and what are you doing here? It's just like Disneyland because everybody has a smile on his face. Everybody's happy. It's good morning. How are you doing? Everybody's friendly. Uh, it's just like being home. It's like an extension of my home. We've got a kitchen back here. Uh, people are in here making lunch just like they would in their own kitchen at lunchtime. It's just amazing, the environment that I have. For four solid years, I have not been summoned anywhere. Uh, I have not been fired or ostracized. I have not been commanded to go to watch somebody leaping around in a body stocking or jauntily throwing a cigarette butt into the orchestra pit in God's auditorium. I have not been summoned to a dinner with a bunch of absolute bores that I cannot stand. Uh, not once has anyone told me the dress is formal, you will get into your penguin suit with all the rest of these people and show up at some inanity or other uh, which will bore you to tears, which you will not enjoy. There have been so many blessings that I've experienced in the last four years. I've been able to go hunting every year, which has been a blessing. The biggest blessing is that every day at 12 o'clock, five days a week, I go rushing in there to the radio studio. My big studio Bible is in there open before me. The microphone is waiting for me. And out there are thousands of people that really want to drink in and want to hear what I've got to say. And I can go in there and I can pour out of my mind and my heart and all of these many, many years of experience and education and realize now they were not being taken away from me that that education was not being destroyed. Those years of practice, those years of note-taking, all of those broadcasts, all of those classes have not been destroyed as I thought they were being destroyed about four years ago. They're still there. They've still been put to good use. They've been built into me and they are there. So there's so much for me to rejoice over. I had a newspaper reporter ask me what I was worth he wanted to know about my wealth. Maybe it was a result of a lie in People magazine. They came out and wanted to photograph my wife and I when we first moved into our little house. And I have a little electric golf cart. And the golf cart is made by a firm that is called EZ, the letters E and then Z, dash, go. means that the cart, the cart goes easy, you know. So here's the picture in People magazine, and it says, perhaps the golf cart is symbolic because Garner Ted once owned one million dollars in real estate. Oh, I wish that were true. If that had been true, if I had even owned twenty thousand dollars in real estate, if I had owned ten thousand dollars, I could have had that much more money to put into this work to get it started. But I didn't, and so I couldn't. But I suppose newspaper reporters oftentimes come to the same conclusions, and so the man wanted to know whether or not I was a wealthy man. And I told him, I sure am. I am so wealthy. Now, I'm not rich and increased with goods. But in one way of measuring wealth, let me tell you how wealthy I am. I've got a lovely wife that still has her girlish figure. She's been married to me a long time, and I've put her through a lot, so she has no reason to look as good as she does. But she looks great. I've got three fine young sons. Maybe two of them are deaf, but look how happy they are. Look how much they have accomplished. Look at the joy they have in life and the joy they give me in my life and my wife. My oldest son doing just fine. Good-looking young man, a lot of talent, a lot of ability. 
I even get to see him and hear him on television every now and then. And every time we say, there's Mark, and we come running and listen to the commercial. That does me a lot of good. Live in a little home nobody can kick me out of with a gorgeous view of a lake. But more importantly than that, God has given me good physical health. A lot of people think I'm still in my early 40s. Good, deep, full night's sleep every night. Don't have any sickness or disease. I have a challenge every single day. I have a, a very new, zestful, interesting life waiting for me every single day when I come to the office. New letters from new people, new articles to work on, another newspaper to get out, a new booklet to work on, new radio program to contemplate, the Feast of Tabernacles coming up, a couple of campaigns coming up next weekend up in Kansas City. People from the general public, even now, hearing about that announcement, going to be coming there, and I'm thinking already, what am I going to say to those people? So many things to be thankful for. But above every one of those, paling every one of them into insignificance, would be the same things that I could say make me a wealthy man, that make a person who is a total paraplegic lying on his back in a bed a very wealthy man. He has his mind. He has the knowledge of the truth of God. He has been forgiven, and he knows he's headed for eternal life. And he knows that no one can take that away from him. And so he rejoices because of what he has. I was asked on the telephone yesterday about a man to do special music at one of my campaigns who is a paraplegic. He can't move his arms or his legs. He sits in a wheelchair, but he composes music, and he's become quite famous in that environment. And he's going to sing about three songs and even do a little talking. And in between the songs, which he has written and composed and sings himself, he's going to give, maybe you could even call it a little testimonial, but as to how much he is happy in being able to help others enjoy what they have through his music, the only thing he can really do right now, he can't type, he can't write, he can't move his hands, but he can sing with his mouth. He can use his lungs and his mouth. But his spine has caused him to be completely crippled and he can't move his hands or his legs. Yet that man rejoices. How much more have I got to rejoice over than he? And yet, even he has so much more to rejoice over than so many other people that we could talk about. So it's all relative. It all depends upon what you know about what you have. Let's go to 1 John, the fifth chapter. 1 John 5, and in the last portion, in verse 11. A couple of free verses here, some of the most important verses in all the Bible in a way. And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He that has the Son has life. Now, I want you in the Church of God International to get that concept deeply down into your mind, to believe that concept and never let go of it. And to realize that it is, in French they say, a fait accompli, meaning it is over. It is finished. It is a past act. And do not ever again be embarrassed by saying, I have been saved. You can at some time in the future perhaps alter that. But I'll tell you this. God won't. The devil can't. And no other human being can. Only you.
personally and privately can ever alter that fait accompli. You have been saved. It's finished. It's over. You're as good as in the kingdom of God, and nobody else can keep you out. Now, the lady who was told by her minister, so what, has got to come to know that as well as we know it, that she need not fear that she has been saved. She's made it. She's as good as there. Now, you know, when you adopt that attitude, when you come to believe that and come to understand it, you can face a machine gun, you can face a spear, a knife, you can face a gun, you can face a mugger, a rapist, or anybody. And you can take all of this pain and all of this suffering and everything I've talked about from the time you were whipped as a kid to the time you cut your finger to the time you had a disease to the time that you were burnt and you can remember all of the, the agony of mental or emotional pain and suffering, the loss of a life of a loved one, and you can take every bit of that pain and put it all together and collapse it down into a weekend, a batting of an eyelash of your life. And you can say, my whole life someday is going to be like a batting of an eyelash in eternity. And all of that pain is going to be like a weekend in my life. You're telling me you're going to do something to me? You're going to hurt me? You can't hurt me. Oh, you can hurt my body. I mean, you can cause me to bleed a little bit. I mean, yeah, I might even yell because I'm not all of that brave. You might shoot me or stab me, and I might even say, ouch. But when it's all over, fella, you're not doing anything to me. Not the real me, because me in here, the thing that is me, my psyche, my personality, my character, what makes me tick, what I think with, the way I react to you, my life, that's Christ in me. That is a new creature, a new personality that is going to go right on into the kingdom of God, and you can't touch that. Oh, you can shoot this old frame to doll rags, but you can't touch me. You can only hurt what I walk around in temporarily. Because, you see, I've got it made through Christ. I'm safe to His kingdom. So, what is there to fear? I could have dredged out all kinds of scripture to tell you, Fear not, men. Fear not, princes. Fear not the lofty looks of man. Do not be afraid of man. How the Apostle Paul said, I will not fear what man can do unto me. Now, that scripture I mentioned is right across the page. Let's get that and then come back to verse 12. In verse 18 of chapter 4, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear has torment. Now, I was so fearful when I was flying down there in that 310 that I, my mind did such horrible things to my body. My mind told my adrenaline gland, go ahead and give it a squirt. And my adrenaline gland said, okay, I'm going to do it. Watch out, stomach, here I come. And all, everything, my duodenum said, quink, you know, and my isles of Langerhans sunk in a sea of acid. And uh, everything was just pumping and squeezing away in there and said, we're going to show him who's boss. And so my mind told all of my glands to ruin my stomach. And my stomach caused my whole body to hurt. But after it was all over, it's just a painful memory, and now, in a way, it's almost a happy one because I learned from the experience. And I realize now that I didn't even need to go through that. If I had known then what I know now, I wouldn't have even gone through all of that pain and suffering because I would have been immune. No one could have got to me like that if I'd have had the kind of faith then that I've come to have now. You see? because it couldn't have touched me. 
You can't, you can't say things to me or do things to me that's going to make my, my mind do that to my body anymore because my mind is just going to tell my duodenum and my isles of Langerhan and my adrenal gland, don't squirt any in there. Just don't do it. I'm not going to let it happen this time because my mind is going to be placid and even and it won't happen. Now back in verse 11 of chapter 5, this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He that has the Son has life. Now, my Bible shows that as a past act. That's saying you've got it. If you have the Son of God, and you know that, and you only, and that is your personal, private choice and decision. And he that has not the Son of God has not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Why did God put that in the Bible? Why did John write that? And John was the one who had to deal with a guy called Diotrephes, remember? John was the man who said he rejoiced with this elderly lady to know that her children were still in the faith. John was the one who leaned his head right on the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper and was close to him to whom Jesus revealed, you know, which one was the Judas. It is him to whom I give the sop. He was privy to a lot of knowledge. He was there present where most of the twelve were not at the Transfiguration. And John was one of the three choice, you might say, closest friends of Jesus Christ, along with James and Peter, even more so than Andrew. And so John, uniquely, was chosen by Christ to write about love. If you look at the way God has arranged these major books of the Bible, you'll see James wrote about faith, and that Peter wrote about hope, and that John wrote about love. James has one book, Peter has two, John has three. And you see that even in the 13th chapter of the book of Acts where it talks about love and joy and peace and it talks about all the attributes of the Holy Spirit and it talks about the three graces as they're called after which some families name their children. Faith, hope, and charity or love. And there are many girls running around the world or women who are called faith. Some of them are named hope and some are named charity. I don't know if anybody named love, but maybe there are. And they name people after what are called the three graces. So John wrote this and said, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. It is not my job as a minister to stand up here and to take away from you the joy of the salvation that Christ has given to you. Let me show you an all-time great example of someone who knew how to rejoice in really hard times. Let's go over to Second Chronicles, the 20th chapter, remembering what James said in James 1-2, that we joy in every temptation. Remembering another scripture in Hebrews talking about the great patriarchs who endured all that suffering for the joy that was set before them. In Second Chronicles, the 20th chapter, back just before... Ezra, Nehemiah, and after First Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 20. I like to read the whole thing, but I'll skim along to save a little bit of time. It came to pass after this also, the children of Moab and the children of Ammon, and with them other besides the Ammonites, came against Jehoshaphat to battle. And there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There comes a great multitude against you from beyond the sea on this side Syria, and behold, they be in Hazan Tamar, or Hazan Tamar, which is in Gedi, and Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the eternal and proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. 
And they all gathered themselves together. There was a great congregation of them. And Jehoshaphat, verse 5, stood in the congregation of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Eternal before the new court and began to pray. And he said, O Eternal God of our fathers, are not you God in heaven? And don't you rule over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in your hand is there not power and might so that none is able to withstand you? Are not you our God who did drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the seed of Abraham, your friend, forever? He's reasoning with God. He's saying, this is illogical, God. You're there and we're here and you gave your seed, Abraham's seed, this land and we're where we ought to be. He's just reasoning with God, making it logical with God. And they dwelt therein and have built you a sanctuary therein for your name, saying, If when evil come upon us, as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we stand before this house and in your presence, for your name is in this house, and cry unto you in our affliction, then you will hear and help. And now, behold, the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade. See, he's reasoning with God. He's saying, God, remember, you didn't even let Israel invade. Now, we could have wiped them out before. He's being logical. He's reasoning with God in this prayer. When they came out of the land of Egypt, but turned from them and destroyed them not, behold, I say, how they reward us to come to cast us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that comes against us. Neither know we what to do. Now, there are a lot of times in my life I literally have not known what to do. This is the best solution I know of. But our eyes are upon thee. Think about that for a while. You don't need to know the solution. You don't need to know what you're going to do, what you're going to say, where you're going to go, who's going to be with you, what to wear, how you're going to act. You can be absolutely at a loss. You're standing dead still, surrounded with nothing but trouble. And the Bible tells you there's only one thing you need to really do. Put your eyes on God. Just throw it all up to Him and say, My problems are your problems. I don't have the faintest idea how to get out of it. I don't know what to say, where I'm going, what I'm going to do. But our eyes are upon Thee. If you have the kind of confidence and the kind of faith that I have seen in people who were about to die and who said, It doesn't matter. It'll all be over very shortly, and it'll just be like a long sleep, and I'll wake up and I'll be in the kingdom of God. I remember the way Mammy made her choice when she was in the hospital over here, and I visited her, and she asked me the question about that operation. And she had feared that operation for years and years. She'd put it off. She made up her mind based upon what I just said. Either way, she knew she was going to win. And she's able to enjoy quite a number of years of extended life in a whole lot better condition, able to serve her sisters and brothers in a whole lot better condition now, getting around instead of others waiting on her, she's able to help wait on another person now and then. She made her choice, and she knew just as surely as that doctor put that anesthesia on there, and she was slowly going under. One way she woke up in the kingdom, and the other way she woke up in the kingdom. She's still going to be in the kingdom of God, the only thing is, is he going to let her stay around here for just a little longer? Or is she going to wake up and say, what do you know, the millennium's already started and I'm in it. But she knew that either way she came out ahead. So she went into that with absolute confidence and without fear. And here she sits, 
must have been okay to do because God spared her life and the doctors were dumbfounded and everybody said that there were a lot of miracles in connection with what physical medical science were able to accomplish. Now here was something that was a little worse than that because there are tens of thousands of lives involved and this is the most remarkable story I think in all of history. It's where an unarmed group of civilians walked straight toward a great advancing army glistening, glittering with burnished weapons of bronze and brass and copper and iron, spears and swords and daggers and metal chariots and horses, bows and arrows and all of the types of weapons of war of that time. And let's notice what they did. Verse 15, he said, Hearken you all Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem and you King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Eternal unto you. And this came the answer back from Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, who was one of the prophets. By reason, do not be afraid or dismayed, verse 15, by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow you go down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and you shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You shall not need to fight in this battle. Now let's talk about a mental or a spiritual or an emotional battle, a physical battle involving physical health, whether it's something that you're facing or whether it is literally something where it is a life-threatening situation. Set yourselves. Now what does that mean? It means take a position. Take your stand. It means you say, I have made up my mind. Here I am. I'm standing here, and here's where I'm at, as the old Western song says. You set yourselves. Stand you still. You don't retreat. And see the salvation of the eternal with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, for the Eternal will be with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Eternal, worshiping the Eternal. Verse 20, They rose up early in the morning, and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Eternal your God, so you shall be established. Believe his prophets, so shall you prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Eternal that should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army. It was an unarmed army, though. And to say, Praise the Eternal, for his mercy endures forever. And they began to sing and to praise. And the Eternal set ambushments against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. And the children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir. They got completely confused, and they began attacking each other. And God allowed that to happen until every one of them were killed. Notice verse 24. None escaped. And Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away the spoil of them. They found among them in abundance both riches with the dead bodies and precious jewels which they stripped off for themselves, more than they could carry away. And they were three days in gathering of the spoil. It was so much. And on the fourth day they assembled themselves in the valley of Biraka, it's pronounced, I believe, for there they blessed the Eternal. Therefore the name of the place was called the valley of Biraka unto this day. And they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat in the forefront of them, to go to Jerusalem again with joy, for the Eternal had made them to rejoice over their enemies. And all they did is go out 
with a song on their lips. Isn't it amazing that the really happy, great, joyous moments of tremendous thrills and exultation that you remember in your life have nearly always been at some carnal occasion? I'll never forget, it was about three seconds to go. It was the last game if Boston won, and they could go one more if they tied it in the Forum, or maybe it was the old sports arena in Los Angeles. Boston, the Celtics, had won the national championships about three or four years in a row. It was an absolute dynasty. Bob Cousy was on the team, one of the greatest passers and, and ball handlers of all time. He was going to cast the ball in bounds, and Jerry West was guarding him. Three seconds to go, and Boston was ahead by one point. And Guy Carnes and Jackie and uh, my wife and I were there and some other people sitting in the stands and saw this happen. On the inbounds pass, Jerry West somehow made some kind of a head fake, and I don't know how he did it, but he grabbed that ball. And he took about two dribbles and cast that ball off from behind the halfway mark, and the buzzer went off and the ball was in the air, and the ball went right through the net. And the stands, including me, everybody just went crazy went straight up in the air, and I came down with my foot completely through the back of the chair, where it came up like that, lodged my foot in there, and I couldn't get it out, but I'm still jumping and waving my arms around, and I'm rejoicing. And everybody, I mean, the women were crying, the men were just beating their hands to hamburger. Everybody went crazy. Now, the photographer happened to turn around at that moment and take a picture of this frenzied crowd. So for about the next two years, every time I went to a Laker game, there was I with my foot, but you couldn't see it, and Guy and a bunch of the rest of us with our mouths wide open and all these people around us, and we ended up on the cover of the sports program. We were just part of the crowd. It just happened that that particular part of the crowd had its picture taken when Jerry West made that basket. Well, Los Angeles went on. That tied it up, and they went on to win that game in overtime, and they won the national championship that year. Now, I remember great parades. I'll never forget the day when finally, after all of our trials and all being loaded aboard and all the swinging of the compass, and we'd been back and forth across the bay, and I'd been in the Navy for over two years, and I was desperate to go to sea. I had joined the Navy to go to sea. Well, finally they assigned me to an aircraft carrier, and I'd been in an aircraft carrier for almost three months, and it was just loaded with nothing but civilians tied to a dock. It was almost like a big old gray building. It never moved. It just sat there. Well, finally... It was all taken out of mothballed and all ready to go. Everything sparkled and gleamed. There was new paint everywhere. And the full complement of about 3,000 men and all of our aircraft were aboard. We had left Alameda, and we were on our way out to sea for sea trials. It was one of these bright, beautiful days. You could see forever in San Francisco. And there were cars going back and forth across the Bay Bridge. And I was up on what is called A-1, clear up above on the island, right beneath the Mark 12 gun director and way up in what is called the island above, of course, where the captain would be there and down below. And, and the aircraft carrier was full of aircraft. And I was wearing my dress blues. Everybody was supposed to dress up for the occasion. There were a lot of guys standing at attention on the deck. And I was standing there with that breeze in my face and that huge big flight deck stretching out forever moving along with a tremendous feeling of, I don't know what, but there was a, an exaltation, there was a high that I felt of going underneath that bridge and then finally underneath the Golden Gate and beginning to feel the first swells of the Pacific and saying, I'm going to sea with all of these other 
you know, people there. Man, I'll never forget that. There are certain moments in your life that were feelings that it just about took your breath. Another one was the time when I first soloed an airplane. And I remember that flight where I've forgotten hundreds and hundreds of other ones. I remember some that were a little terrifying, that weren't quite such an exaltation, but uh, remember some good ones, too. A couple of times when I'd bend the Falcon over and get 300 knots indicated and pull it up to 30 degrees and just hit the stops and just crank it on over in a beautiful barrel roll. And the time I really thrilled was when I was showing off. And I guess that's bad, but I did really did enjoy it because my former instructor, old Johnny over here, had, had uh, been an instructor of mine toward my multi and my instrument rating. And we were going down to Austin one time, and we invited Johnny to go along. We had several people aboard. We we're going to go down and write back for some purpose or other in the work. I don't know. I think I was visiting a radio station. But anyway, Johnny was going to go along. Well, he came up with a cup of coffee in his hand. So here's my former instructor that used to instruct me in little bitty airplanes and little old twins and so on. And he's standing right behind me, standing up with a cup of coffee in his hand. I said, watch this, Johnny. And I rolled a falcon. And his coffee never moved. He just stood there, and the coffee never moved. And I, I felt so great, you know, to be able to do that. Old Johnny's eyes about that big. And, and uh, certain moments like that that really stick out in my life when I, when I think back. And I won't go on and on because there are so many of them, like in fishing or in hunting and other things I can't even tell you about. Certainly one of the greatest moments of my life. I didn't get to see Mark Bourne, but I did get to see David and then later Matthew. And one of the great moments, and I won't go into the great details, but of actually seeing your own son born and telling your wife it's a boy and experiencing that in a little clinic up here in Big Sandy. I mean, there are some highs. There are some things that I've experienced that have been all-time great moments. Now, there's some other great moments. But you know, in retrospect, there have been nowhere near so many great moments of my life that have been connected to spiritual concepts as there should have been. There have been a few. Family night at the feast when everybody was just bawling because I was telling them all about my dad and asking them to pray for him. He doesn't believe that. He doesn't know that I did that. He thinks I was trying to point the people to me and away from him, and I'll never be able to convince him otherwise. But God knows, so that's fine. But you know, as I think of the many times I have sat in a church service and I've had men up there in that pulpit that have browbeat me and they have, they have made me fearful and they've made me go out of there wondering if I am ever going to make it. And they have not just corrected, but I mean just plain tongue-lashed. I mean just stormed and caterwauled and ranted and raved until I felt like I couldn't even look over. I felt like the littlest guy ever recorded in the Bible, you know, Bildad the shoe height. I mean, I was just barely looking over my shoes. I was so little by the time I crept out of there. I was like old Bildad. I don't remember enough times of great joy. There have been a few. And they were always in association with the Feast of Tabernacles. When we would have thousands of people there, a great song from the choir, a particularly inspiring sermon, and those would be moments that I really tend to remember. Certain sermons, certain moments do stand out. But you know, when you think about that, what the Bible says about the joy that we should experience of rejoicing even in tribulation, of rejoicing over enemies, of rejoicing even when some of the most horrifying things may be facing us, we need to have more joy in our lives. Let's turn to Psalm 51 and verse 12. The 51st Psalm is the repentance psalm. It is the psalm that David prayed and sung after he had committed a terrible sin, but he wanted to be forgiven. 
and he wanted his sins completely obliterated and wiped out and cast into the sea and forgotten forever. And you know, he'd been morose. He'd been downcast. He had been under a weight of guilt. And he wanted so badly to be lifted out of that feeling of guilt. And so he began to pray and say, and I want to read up to it, verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according unto the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned. Very important point. David is praying directly to God. He is not praying to a minister or a man. This is a deeply personal, private conversation between David, who is going to be your king in the millennium, a man after God's own heart, who could murder, he could commit adultery, he could lie, he could be a man who could slay 200 Philistines with the edge of a sword, but he was a man who could repent. And he said, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you might be justified when you speak and be clear when you judge. Behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you shall make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, that's a strong cleansing agent, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. And so should the church of God pray. And so does the Church of God International pray, Restore unto us the joy of thy salvation. Then, verse 13, to paraphrase it, Will we teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Sinners are converted when the Church joys in salvation. When we are a place of joy, of happiness, of excitement, of exuberance, of zeal, of friendliness, of a deep appreciation of what we have, of saying how wealthy, not increased with goods, but how blessed in the Spirit we really are, because God has saved us, because we are secure for His kingdom, because there is nothing any human being can do to us that can change that final outcome. And then we have something we want to share, and because we are so joyful, and because we are so happy, and because we are looking forward to every, every new day and every new experience in the church of God, others will be almost magnetically attracted. They will gravitate to you as a person and to the church as a whole. And I certainly hope, as we look toward the Feast of Tabernacles and the Holy Day season in the fall, that all of us can get that message and that feeling and be praying, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation.